Welcome to the Aux Podcast, audio and audio, with your host, me, Will, Will Fly. That's enough of the intro, let's get this thing started. When we look back through history and we look at past conflicts, many times there's no apparent attempt by the combatants in the past to present an ideological reason for the conflict. The Assyrians didn't claim to conquer the ten northern tribes of Israel, the the northern kingdom, because they were objected to Judaism or anything like that. That's just standard practice. Marauders, Attila the Hun, never apparently presented any kind of rationale or justification. In Thucydides, you might be able to discern some sort of rationale between Sparta and and Athens, that there was something at stake larger than just an ethnic or uh, partisan conflict. Later, Islamic conflict, uh, Islamic conquests appear to be justified by some sort of ideology, as do the Spanish in Mexico, etc. And looking back at it from hundreds or thousands of years later, you wonder how much of that rationale or justification was window dressing. It didn't matter. There was obviously a fundamental economic or other motivation that was purely greed. But on the other hand, the rationale clearly motivated some people in some way and had some effect on the outcome. There are conflicts, not necessarily military, from the distant past in which the participants are very adamant that the reason is ideological. And it is not always obvious or apparent what would be the self-interested rationale that would surplant the explanation given by the participants themselves. And in this podcast, I'm going to look at a couple of examples of ideological conflicts from the past where the participant, we have the point of view of the participants, hopefully from more than one side, and it, when we look at the ideological issue, it looks so trivial and stupid that modern historians look very hard for the self-interested reason behind the argument because it just can't be that people would fight or separate themselves or have a major conflict over such a petty, stupid issue. So again, when we look in the past, we often don't find any reason or justification. It's just, I got mine, I can, I'm stronger and bigger than you, and I'm going to take what you have, which was the rule of thumb and for most conflicts. But in other cases where they claim an ideological reason, we in a couple of those cases, we look at it and we're like, that is a dumb reason. And some of the dumbest that I could find from history that we're going to look at today um, come from first century Judea, around the time of Jesus, and another one would be in the medieval period uh, in the Byzantine Empire. And I'm going to mention a couple other in passing, and then I'm going to look at recent events and think about, will people in the future think we are as dumb and idiotic as our ancestors appear to us today? Are we squabbling and fighting about a petty ideological issue which nobody in the future is going to think is important. So it's sort of an exercise of going to a place that's very different in time and place and mentality and worldview and looking at how they fought with each other over what and then trying to look at our own times or close to our own times and think, are we squabbling about something as idiotic as they did? All right, first century Judea. These writers said that these three groups were the Sadducees, who I've just described, the people... Uh, centered around the priesthood of the temple. And then there were a group called the Pharisees who were scattered more through the land, and they are sort of the ancestors of modern Judaism. They, uh, to Christians, they don't appear in a good light in the Gospels because Jesus often fulminates against these Pharisees. But what they're trying to do 
is not that different from what Jesus was trying to do, which was to break away from the grip that the priesthood, the Sadducees, had upon Jewish worship, get it back to its roots, get it back to communities, create synagogues. That's a Greek word for people coming together. So John Rigby Hale, uh, exploring the roots of religion, the great courses, the teaching company, and also a complete lecture series by Gary Rensberg called the Dead Sea Scrolls by the same company. And from Israelite to Jew, also, teaching company, great courses. And if I go out on a limb, I'm going to say that there's six groups of basically Israelites or Jews, at least, working in and around uh, Judea, uh, the Galilee, let's say around the year one. One of those we're going to call the Sadducees, who are like the temple. Um, bring your sheep there to the temple, sacrifice uh, priesthood that's passed down by gener- from generation to generation, and that would be seen apparently the most powerful and the most widespread group, probably collaborating with the Roman authorities. And then you have the Pharisees, who are the ancestors of the rabbinical Judaism, the ancestors of all modern forms of Judaism. And then you're going to have the Samaritans, who broke off much earlier from the main thrust of Judaism, and the issue there was the temple. The Samaritans only accept the most ancient books of what we call the Hebrew Bible or the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament, uh, because they broke off well before that. And the issue there is where do you pray, on the mountain or at the temple? Josephus mentions the Zealots, who are the leaders of the two rebellions against Rome. He mentions the Essenes, who apparently or probably or perhaps are the same group that authored the Dead Sea Scrolls. What am I at? Five? And originally I said of the year one, that can't work. Let's say the year 50, because I'm going to add Christians or followers of Jesus in there, who are also going to split into many different groups. But at this point, we're going to say it's a tiny little sect that doesn't even make it into Josephus. It's not significant enough, although John the Baptist may have. And so this book, Josephus, which survived sort of miraculously from the ancient world, mentions the Essenes much later, 1946 or 47, 49, something like that. We find the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the voice of one of the losers of these six groups reemerges. And really, we don't really know much about what the Samaritans or the Sadducees or the the, um, Zealots or the Pharisees were saying at this time, but we do know about the Essenes and the Christians, although they were the smallest and perhaps most insignificant sect, but we have their voice. So let's consider the cause of these sectarian splits, some of the causes. In one account, the wicked priest summons the teacher of righteousness on the day that the teacher, using a different calendar from the one that was used in the temple, regarded as the day of atonement. So, as we know, the world was created in seven days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then you rest on a Saturday. When was the first day? Like right now, as I'm recording this, it's Monday. Is it really the first? Is it Monday if we went back all the way to the beginning of the universe? Maybe it's really Wednesday because the count is off by two days. Now, you might be saying it's all symbolic. It just means that you work for six days, then you rest for one and think in your mind, clear your mind, think about another kind of existence or or some kind of spiritual resetting of your own individual clock. Seems like the Dead Sea Scroll people would say, nah, it's Wednesday, it's or it's Friday, it's the Sabbath. 
in the and the Sadducees no say it's not the Sabbath it's Wednesday it's, the, it's Wednesday no it's Friday so they actually cared about that and then what if you have a, a holiday Passover the Day of Atonement or something like that and it falls on a Sunday so Saturday you know starting Saturday was the Sabbath. So you're not supposed to cook. And according to the Dead Scroll, Sea Scrolls guys, you're not supposed to poop. Yeah, these temple Jews are so lax that they're pooping on the Sabbath. But we don't. Not us Essenes. And not only do we not poop on a Saturday, we won't poop on the next day, Sunday, if it's a Passover, if it's a, if it's a f- festival day. Whereas those lax temple priests, they'll say that if there is a Sabbath before a festival that you can go ahead and cook and poop and do all that stuff on the Sabbath. No, we don't. And since these lax temple priests are letting people go two days pooping all the time, we are going to separate ourselves, make our own pots and take off. That's it. You guys are not righteous. And if you think this is too petty to split a community the evidence suggests otherwise. What may have begun as an internal disagreement among priests hardened over time. The reigning temple authorities did not change their ways. Over centuries, ritual disagreements transformed into the binary notion of the cosmos, shown in some of the texts. The division became an abyss into which in the eyes of the predestined children of light, the rest of the world was destined to fall. When the Romans destroyed Qumran in 68 CE, though, they made no distinctions between the children of light and those of dark. Uh, The southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, clung to the temple and the rituals and the beliefs uh, that went with the temple at Jerusalem, and that became the sort of forerunner of all modern Judaism. And then the Samaritans went their own way, and they did their worship not in a temple, but up on a sacred mountain, a mountain called Gerizim, mistakenly as a monolithic Jewish faith coming down through time, four different competing groups, um, all believing that they've got the right. These are what are called eschatological. That is, they are things that try to study and, and consider ideas about the end of the world. And just as the Christian Bible ends with the revelations of St. John, in which the end of the world is foreseen, so did these texts that we are going to just call Essene texts. They were visions of battles and calamities and great divine figures there in the context of the world being uh, ended, uh, safeguarded against impure things like a lizard. So it appears that we now know what these people call themselves, Yahad. So around 700 BC, you split over whether you pray at the temple or pray at the mountain. Maybe 100 B.C., you split over whether you um, poop on a Saturday or not. And now let's jump ahead to about 700 A.D., 750 A.D., 650 A.D., whether you have an actual war about whether there should be pictures in a church or not. Quoting him then, the true and unalterable one, which bears his essential characteristics, or the one which he took up for our sake when he assumed the form of a servant. Now you hear there... Again, the echo of that old Greek notion. An image of Christ could not possibly reveal what was really important. The cult statue, for example, of this god or that goddess in a temple, which was actually believed to to have the god or goddess present in it. So Christian writers 
were very, very reluctant to accept that proposition. What we would say is that in the dawning fourth century, in other words, at the moment of the Constantinian Revolution, the environment does not seem to have been hospitable for the emergence of a Christian art. As late antiquity unfolded, a basic set of justifications for Christian art emerged, and in the Catholic and Orthodox worlds, they have basically retained their validity to this day. He talks about imperial images by way of analogy with Christian images. He said that Christians do not worship those images. They worship before those images, and their acts of worship or veneration are passed on to the person represented. And, and apparently he'd gone on a bit of a campaign taking down images. So just jumping around in the argument, which is much longer and more comprehensive in the original source, Late Antiquity by Noble Thomas, we get a flavor of the arguments. There was the Jewish prohibition against representations or images of God, although archaeologically you do see images of Moses and uh, on the walls of synagogues, and the Early Christians took up a lot, a lot of, or there was a strong movement within early Christianity against iconography. And the Jewish pagan dynamic is not that different than the Christian pagan dynamic, which is anything that the pagans do is de facto wrong, evil, immoral. Sexual activity between men, eating pork, presenting images of the divine in physical form. But once the pagans are no longer an issue in the, after the conversion of the empire to Christianity, the, the issue doesn't go away as there's these conflicts, which actually result in warfare. And the Christians continue to fight each other, even with Islamic Arabic armies at the gates of Constantinople. And historians have looked at the data and said, this is not really a conflict over the issue of whether or not there should be images in the church. This is a conflict between those people who converted from Judaism to Christianity and those that converted from paganism to Christianity, and the underlying conflict is pseudo-ethnic. And this is why the conflict is most intense in Asia Minor, which is today Turkey, where there was a large percentage of formerly Jewish converts to Christianity. But it's kind of hard to prove that kind of argument. We don't have the resources to do any kind of demographic analysis, and other historians will say, no, they said they were fighting over this thing with the images in the church, and that's what they were fighting about. But let's jump ahead another 900 years, and we have the Protestant Reformation, and we have the 30 Years' War in Germany, where they're fighting over Lutheranism versus Catholicism. And the conflict over imagery in the church did not go away. But you have additional arguments about how one is justified and where does authority come from. But if you jump into Germany today and you say, you guys are going to have a war over whether you should be Lutheran or, Christ or Catholic, it's going to seem rather absurd. Or if you suggest there should be a war about whether there should be imagery in the church or not, or hopefully you're not going to split a community on whether you can poop on Saturday. But that's the ancient world. And now we're in the modern world and we no longer have these kind of ridiculous conflicts that look absurd from the point of view of the future. Or do we? They know that the Cold War, in various ways, shaped their lives because they've been told how it affected their families. Some of them, by no means all, understand that if a few decisions had been made differently at a few critical moments during that conflict, they might not even have had a life. Yeah, Cuban Missile Crisis could have had a world war, and there was Khrushchev slamming his shoe on the podium 
at the United Nations saying, we will bury you. This must have been a very serious ideological conflict over something very meaningful. Or was it? I mean, in the West, there was central planning. And in the East, they believed in science and drove cars. And maybe in the East, there wasn't as many individual civil rights. But on the other hand, it was the capitalist West that produced 99% of the carbon that later went on to cause global warming. The capitalists built hotels over practically the entire coastline, and the only place for birds, migrating birds, to safely stop was in North Korea and Asia. And after the capitalists won the Cold War, so to speak, there were people drowning in the Mediterranean trying to get to Europe. And the wall between East and West Berlin came down, but then a new wall went up between Poland and Belarus. And of course, it seemed really important to the people at the time. And that nuclear missiles from Cuba or Turkey pointing at the other side is absolutely unacceptable. But all of those conflicts seem very important to the people at the time. The teacher of righteousness said that if you had two Sabbaths in a row, if you had a Sabbath and a holiday, then, hey, you can't poop for 48 hours. And Wednesday is not Friday. That's just the way it is. God put it up like that. And you pseudo-pagan idolaters are going to bring images of Jesus into the church. Terrible. And we're only 30 years out from the end of the Cold War, and it's already starting to look not that significant. There was no real clash of civilizations or ideology. Both sides were willing to gin up fear, and both sides backed themselves into a corner in framing the conflict ideologically, preventing the moments when there was an opportunity to to talk it down until eventually they just did kind of just go away. And so we're a couple thousand years away from the controversy about whether a temple or a mountain is the appropriate place to offer sacrifice to Yahweh. And it's been 2,000 years since the Essenes segregated them from the rest of society based on these issues of purity. And it's been over 1,500 years since the Echinoclastic Wars. And Protestant versus Catholic is not likely to start off another major conflict. But that doesn't mean that some pretty idiotic, petty differences couldn't be exacerbated beyond all recognition in the present time. And thank you for joining me for this fourth episode of AUX, Audio on Audio, on idiotic controversies of the past. Uh, To these so-called Samaritans, uh, the temple itself was as great an abomination as all those little shrines that King Solomon was supposed to have built.